Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about composting. Hi, welcome to episode number 27. I have Neil Seldman with Institute of Local Self-Reliance joining me today, which is really exciting. Um, You know, my path took a pivot after reading one of Neil's articles about the waste industry and uh, the article was titled The U- U.S. Waste Knot. And um, basically, that shed light on why trash continues to go to the landfill or incinerator, uh, despite, you know, big trash companies like Waste Management Republic saying that they're working on sustainability and um You know, they're working on solutions, but being uh, one in the industry, I wasn't really sure how the behind the scenes worked until I read Neil's article. And, you know, you've been at ILSR for a while now. Um, Could you introduce yourself and just tell people your background, how you came to the waste topic? Sure. Um, well, um, I, uh, I, was a, I am a co-founder of the Institute. We started the Institute in early uh, 1974. And um, my colleagues, David Morris and Gil Friend were all living in the Adams Morgan community of Washington, DC. We had all uh, managed to, to arrive in DC in the late 60s. Uh, we lived in the community for a while. We decided to stay. And um, we decided to uh, make Adams Morgan our demonstration uh, Petri dish, if you will. Uh, We were trying to see if a community of about 20 to 25,000 people in a neighborhood, two neighborhoods up from downtown Washington could become self-reliant using the uh, uh, sun falling on its rooftops, the raw materials flowing through uh, the uh, community. Uh, and the uh, possibility of raising, uh, growing food in greenhouses as well as in, uh, on available open space. Um, I <laughs> was assigned uh, to work on recycling. I had experience working in factories and running divisions of factories, uh, and we just started working on things. I uh, worked on uh, uh, collecting, processing, and reusing materials such as composting for the gardens and uh, uh, food distribution uh, uh, stores that were set up, co-ops mostly. Uh, David Morris focused on energy, decentralized energy from uh, passive solar. And just at that time, photoelectric uh, cells were uh, invented uh, not far away in Rockville, Maryland, suburb of DC. And Gil Friend was focused on urban agriculture. And we just started working on projects Uh, We were uh, focused on our neighborhood. Um, Within a year or so, we started doing projects in other parts of the city. Uh, And finally, um, I'm going to guess by around 
late 70s, early 80s, we started taking, uh, uh, undertaking projects in other cities. I think Newark, Cleveland, and Minneapolis were the first cities uh, that we started working with outside of DC. And uh, the purpose of our demonstration in DC and then our extended work across the country was to show that um, decentralizing the economy, uh, growing as much uh, food, uh, producing as much uh, product, as many products as we could and uh, generating our own energy was not only a key uh, to uh, our community's uh, self-reliance and future, but for the whole city and ultimately the whole country. Uh, we only work in the United States. Uh, we, of course, share information overseas uh, uh, with folks. We learn and we uh, at, at some points teach, uh, but we are focused on the United States and decentralizing the political economy, returning decision-making power to the lowest level possible. We, we refer to the concept of, of administration as subsidiarity, that is uh, solving problems at the, at the, at the uh, level where people are closest. If you can't solve the problem at the local level, you move on uh, to regional and perhaps national levels. But the key is to produce as much as you can within your own communities using the labor, natural resources and capital available in our cities, which proved to be quite considerable. And um, uh, we now are a national organization. We have offices in uh, Portland, Maine and um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as well as Washington, DC. And we continue to work on the same three issues, energy, agri urban ag energy agriculture, and <clears throat> uh, raw materials uh, waste. Um, but we've, over the years, we've added two initiatives, uh, independent business and finance uh, and uh, uh, broadband. Uh, we, uh, we feel that these were two sectors that were essential for uh, the growth and ultimate self-reliance of cities, regions, and states, and the country. Okay, and it looks like you're, you've been mostly focused on the waste sector due to your, your writing and your articles that you continue to publish. Um, you know, that article that I read about big waste, um, can you define what big waste is? Yeah, um, uh, first of all, I, I could say that uh, uh, the article you mentioned, uh, as well as others, uh, uh, are on our webpage ilsr.org slash recycle. And yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes as oh, well. Okay. Um, and um, let, let me uh, point out that when we got started in 1974, uh, the recycling movement was just beginning. It began in the late 60s and it, it grew from drop off to community collection and ultimately cities took over. Um, and uh, we've had tremendous, uh, had tremendous growth in recycling in late, uh, let's say mid 60s, the country was recycling at about 5% 5% um, uh, of our post-consumer materials. Uh, but by 1970, about 30 years on, we were at 35% uh, with the gr mostly grassroots uh, uh, drop-off curbs uh, curbside recycling of dual stream, meaning keeping uh, glass separate from paper uh, so that the materials are clean and, and can be sold to market. But uh, the success of recycling was a direct threat to the very large companies that were formed in that very same era. Garbage collection is most efficient at the local level, 
but business people uh, like the folks, uh, the cl very clever businessmen uh, who started Browning Ferris Industries and Waste Management Inc. in the late fifties, uh, realized that if they uh, can form monopoly, uh, create monopolies, they can control uh, the price of disposal and even collection. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, these companies uh, uh, use their capital and uh, to uh, buy up hundreds and thousands of small scale mom and pop small uh, garbage collection industry. Again, they didn't add any efficiency to the system, but they added profitability to the system because of asserting their uh, monopoly control over landfills. It, it's a very fascinating story uh, for those who follow US environmental history. You'll know that in the 60s, uh, when the country regained its uh, uh, environmental consciousness, um, there were uh, tremendous investments in cleaning up the environment, the Clean Air Act, uh, the Clean Water Act, and hundreds of billions of dollars were made available to cities and counties to rebuild or build tertiary wastewater treatment uh, plants to protect the country, the water supply and uh, uh, proper uh, sewage management. But no money went to uh, cities and counties for landfills. And as a result of that, it was sort of open territory for these large capitalist, uh, capitalized companies to buy up uh, landfills and literally uh, reduce the public ownership of landfills. And this occurred uh, at a time when the post-World War II uh, waste stream was uh, in the, uh, growing by leaps and bounds. The baby boomers, there were more people and there were more products uh, being produced uh, to meet the pent up demand of both the depression and uh, the World, uh, World War II. So um, these companies uh, got control over landfills. They, the, the three or four top landfill companies in the United States now own about 75% of the uh, 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 permitted landfill capacity. And therefore they, uh, they control the bank, if you will. Everyone has to use uh, a landfill or an incinerator uh, which is another phase, garbage incinerator, which was another phase, which I won't get into now. Uh, but everyone needs a landfill. Even if you burn garbage, about 20% of what you burn has to go to a landfill as ash and hazardous material. Um, well, uh, it turns out that as recycling started the same time as these companies started their monopolization, it turns out that recycling was hurting their business. And they started getting messages in the 80s and 90s that recycling was bad for Waste Management Inc. and Republic, et cetera, Browning Ferris Industries. And that's- How so? How was it bad? Because instead of going to landfills where these companies were making extraordinary profits, um, 50, 60, 70%, uh, the material was not going to them. It was going to private industry and the amount of going to landfills and incinerators was reduced. And Wall Street was very clear. It said to these companies, you better do something about recycling because they're eating into your profits. And if they eat into your profits, your stock prices are going to go down. And because these companies were buying up all the mom and pop stores with their stocks, not with cash, they had to keep their prices up. And they kept doing that. And eventually uh, they got involved in major fraud. Around 1999, the year 2000, uh, they were caught fixing the books. Uh, their uh, accounting company, Arthur Anderson. Waste management in particular. That is correct. Right. Waste management and Arthur Anderson were found out 
and they were fined about $600 million uh, by the feds. This, I assume it was the Securities Exchange Commission because they were issuing phony reports to make their stock look better than it was. And um, they had to pay that fine, but the government did not break up the monopolies as they did generations before with the oil industry and, and so on. So the empires of these companies continued to exist. And they, uh, they got their revenge by uh, implementing a way to keep recycling from growing. And that, uh, that technology was called single stream recycling. Uh, up but we the, currently practice in most municipalities today. That is correct. 80% of our cities use single stream. In the year 2000, there were maybe uh, two or 3%. Uh, but the transition was very quick. Uh, we explained it in our paper. I, I can't go into all the details now. But um, the cities were forced by their citizens to get involved in recycling. City DP departments of public works hated recycling. It was an add-on task. So they were very happy to contract out to Waste Management Inc. And Waste Management Inc. calculated that if that people throw all their stuff together in one bin and they collect it, it's cheaper. Uh, and therefore they were allowed to underbid and eventually drive out of business all the dual stream, meaning keeping your paper separate so it doesn't get contaminated by the glass. Um, that was the, the mode of collection prior to the year 2000. But by 2005, the transition was so dramatic, it went from uh, a very few cities uh, using single stream to 80% of our major cities now using dual stream. The result was that after recycling soared from 5% to 35% in, 20, in 30, yeah, about 30 years, from 2005 to our current date, 2021, um, not only did recycling stagnate at 35%, uh, but because of the uh, uh, Chinese debacle, which I'll explain in a moment, uh, that is China, our single stream recycling was so contaminated 30, 40% of, uh, of, of non-recycled materials that China in 2018 decided not to buy any recyclables from us. And that was a, a key crisis for, um, for uh, recycling in the US. And our recycling rate actually went down from about 218 to 219 to from 35% to 32%. And it, that, that's where it is right now. Um, I could go into what the industry is trying to do. Uh, they're trying to maintain their single stream system, uh, but cities are uh, moving away from that. Uh, in ways that I can describe. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I've been noticing after the, what do they call it? The green fence or, you know, basically China was propping up the recycling industry with their cheap shipping and labor costs. And, you know, when they did, when, you know, enough out public outcry and by the Chinese citizens happened, the government, uh, you know, outlawed any more imports of recyclables and the reason the public was against importing you know the U.S. recyclables is because it was heavily contaminated it was cheap plastics that were you know ending up in their waterways and you know very toxic material uh, so ever ever since that that green wall um yeah, let me, that's let, interesting. Let me, just, let me just be a little more 
specific. In, in 2013, the Chinese issued a policy called the Green Fence, in which they the issued a warning. Uh, we're putting up this fence to start screening you guys because we don't trust you. Our costs of uh, labor are going up and the contamination you mentioned is literally polluting our countryside. Um, and then in two, between 2013 and 2018, the US industry did nothing. So in 2018, the, 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 uh, the sword, the national sword came down, if you will. <laughs> and that is when uh, the end of two, 2017 is when they stopped buying from us completely. And other countries did the same thing, India, Viet, uh, Vietnam, and uh, other Asian markets. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and so. Um, again, to, uh, we're jumping forward, but in what, what's happening since then, there has been a major, um, I'll say a rebirth of recycling, of localized recycling in the United States. And it's caused by a, a number of economic and political reasons. Um, with China uh, dropping uh, its purchasing, uh, the, the prices of raw materials, of secondary raw, raw, raw materials collapsed. And that meant that the US paper industry, which had been closing down all its recycled mills, uh, started reopening them because China had bid up the price of recycled paper so high that it was not worth it for US paper mills to invest in refurbishing their old uh, recycling mills. Now those mills in the last three years have been revitalized. Over $4 billion of private money has gone into paper mills of all kinds uh, throughout the country. And as a result, the prices have come back up. Uh, the same thing has happened in plastic recycling and electronic scrap recycling. The investment by the private sector has been quite uh, remarkable. Uh, at the same time, cities have been making their own investments, mostly in composting, uh, which is the fastest growing part of the recycling movement, uh, the recycling activity in the United States. Uh, the other area that has grown uh, exponent exponentially is reuse. Uh, reuse companies, Habitat for Humanity, uh, Second Chance in Baltimore. Uh, there are just hundreds, if not thousands, of new reuse businesses that are growing very rapidly, and for good reason. Uh, people are saving money. Uh, reuse businesses pay sales tax, uh, and reuse businesses not only create jobs, they create very good jobs, and there are specialty companies like um, uh, 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 home... Uh, Homeboy Industries in LA, uh, uh, Recycle Force in Indianapolis, etc., uh, that are focused their reuse training on hard to employ uh, uh, people, men and women who've been incarcerated and um, are having trouble getting into the mainstream economy. Well, these jobs are very good. They pay decent wages, health care, uh, family benefits, and we're seeing recidivism that is the percentage of, of people who come out of prison that go back to prison uh, in a few years uh, reduced dramatically. Uh, in Baltimore, one company has reduced recidivism to zero. Indiana, uh, the group in Indianapolis has reduced recidivism to about 20%. The national average is 75%. So these reuse businesses are booming because of economic and social benefits that they provide. Yeah, and I think it's important we talk about the like recycling and the other forms of recycling, especially since that is a, a large, significant chunk of the waste stream. And, you know, if cities are going to achieve zero waste, they need to look at all the different segments. 
But I know ILS, ILSR is a big supporter of the community composting initiative. They have their own initiative and are kind of like the touchstone for all us community composters around the nation. What, um, what have you noticed, you know, with com community composting uh, going so, you know, what have you noticed about the current state of the composting movement and how that um, you may, like, what are the trends that you have, have noticed? Well, um, I want to point out that composting is a reuse of, of, of organic material to produce composting is an essential social and an uh, essentially essential social and essential environmental strategy, as well as a way to reduce pollution and reduce costs of municipal waste management. And there are three forms. Uh, there's backyard composting, which is growing by leaps and bounds in cities, uh, DC, Baltimore. They are investing in their uh, households. Uh, if people get training and want to do backyard composting, uh, uh, these cities are literally paying people to uh, uh, buy them their backyard bins. Uh, Brenda Platt, uh, my colleague at the Institute who oversees our uh, 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 composting for community initiative, uh, she and her colleagues are on contract in DC, Baltimore, other cities, helping backyard composting move along basically by providing training programs uh, on how to do it properly. Um, secondly, there are community scale composting, such as the one uh, where we work in extensively in Baltimore, uh, the Filbert Street Garden. It's about an acre and a half. It's been a garden for 10 years on public property. It's an education center. They grow uh, animals, uh, trees, etc. cetera. Uh, and we worked with them to get grants to build a very small compost pad adjacent to the garden so that uh, uh, small businesses and households, we collect the company that was formed, collects the material, brings it back to the garden, it's composted, and of course the compost is used right on the spot. And that leads to education, it leads to proper diets, uh, growing of food, and um, it literally introduces young people. The Filbert Street Garden happens to be across the street from an elementary school, and it, uh, it literally reduces what the psychologists are now calling nature deficit disorder. If you grow up not knowing how bugs and plants integrate and stuff, uh, you literally are restricting your IQ. Whereas if you have a compost, uh, 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 compost bin and uh, you compost, you see natural cycles, you use the end compost, you look at all the bugs inside and figure out what they're doing, uh, you are increasing your IQ uh, by becoming familiar with uh, the natural processes. Um, so there's, there's no underestimating uh, the importance of composting. In fact, we encourage uh, families to do vermicomposting, which is you build a little uh, small bin, maybe one foot by two, two feet, fill it with scrap paper, put food in it, uh, get some worms, and the worms will continuously uh, eat your food. Literally, it, uh, the food uh, degrades and the worms eat the uh, bugs. And uh, that is, an, uh, we've had them in our house for years. And uh, growing up, the kids learn about it. The kids do science projects. I won't go into the details of the science projects my kids did, but they were fun. 
And my kids are in their 40s and they're still composting and their kids are now composting. So um, it's, a, um, it's a pathway that uh, everyone uh, should investigate, even if you live in an apartment house, you could always have a small vermicomposting system uh, to get rid of foods, but also to make sure that your kids are uh, up with the latest science and uh, can observe nature uh, in your own home. And then finally, there's, uh, there are centralized uh, recycling uh, composting systems. Um, for traditional composting, uh, we think that the ideal size is about 300 to 400 tons per day. There are many larger systems. Larger systems tend to fail more and larger systems tend to be owned and operated by the large um, waste management Inc. Uh, uh, waste management and their interest is throughput not quality and many of those systems have failed. So we prefer the smaller scale uh, city the size of DC which is 600,000 people. We might need two facilities. Um, uh, we're a relatively small city. Big cities like Philadelphia and New York would need perhaps dozens of, uh, of compost, centralized compost facilities. And you said 300 to 400 tons of throughput per day? That is correct. We think that is roughly, obviously each city is different. The mix of materials is different, but that's more or less a, a, um, a thumbnail, uh, excuse me, a, a, a rule of thumb uh, mm -hmm. for composting facilities. There's also another form of, of getting energy and uh, uh, benefits from organics, and that's through anaerobic digestion, in which you put the food uh, in, a, uh, in an environment with limited if, uh, uh, oxygen, and uh, it decomposes and gives methane gas, which can be captured and used to produce energy or run truck fleets or taxi fleets. And what do you prefer, composting or AD? Uh, I, they both have their advantages. A, a, anaerobic digestion is more capital intensive, uh, uh, but it, um, it takes less land. And if you're in urban areas, that's a consideration. Uh, one plant is being built right now in Jessup, Maryland. A European company is building it. I don't know the exact capacity, but it is uh, designed to, uh, uh, to get deliveries from Washington, D.C., and Baltimore. Jessup, Maryland is 20 miles, uh, uh, is equidistant between the two cities, roughly 40 miles apart. Um, and um, of course, they'll take materials from other, uh, from other uh, jurisdictions as well. Um, it, uh, each case has to be examined. Uh, we, we have technical experts when cities, we're working now in Montgomery County, uh, who, and we're doing that very investigation. Uh, we work with a uh, nationally recognized expert, Craig Coker, uh, to help communities evaluate not only whether you should use uh, windrow composting versus anaerobic digestion, but what type of windrow composting and what type of uh, AD and what size, et cetera. Uh, and these, have to, these are you know, very technical plants. They need to be run well uh, to keep them healthy and to keep the products healthy. Uh, so each plant needs its own uh, unique uh, analysis, business plan, etc. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. 
The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32-plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half-an-hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website, www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number 2, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. Okay, let me ask you about community composting. It's about every day. I see a new community composter popping up on Instagram or Facebook. And it seems like, um, you know, it's becoming a very popular movement among the the customers, the subscribers, but also the ones willing to spearhead it. but what, what do you see as the future with community composting? Well, um, as I said earlier, when recycling got started in the late 60s, early 70s, um, people who wanted to be responsible for the environment, responsible socially, um, recycling became an area for entrepreneurship, business development, and people have staked their careers and made their careers, myself included, on recycling an industry uh, that didn't exist in the United States until the 1970s. Let me point out that there were, the industry, industrial part, uh, what we call the scrappies, the industrial scrap processors, they have always existed. But after World War II, people stopped, uh, co- uh, consumers, households stopped recycling. And then in the 70s, it got started again with the help of the scrappies, but mostly with the help of citizen activists who turned their backyards, old garages, schoolyards into drop-off recycling centers, which then became aggregation points, uh, uh, collection companies, and then ultimately to municipal systems. And um, by the way, there's a wonderful book that's in development uh, called uh, The The Founders' Hearts. And it's uh, put out by the uh, Recycling Archives Project it's stories of the pioneers of recycling from the 1970s in this country. Uh, you could get in touch uh, with the folks, uh, contact Urban Ore, O-R-E. Uh, the, the archives are kept in Berkeley, California at Urban Ore. And if you contact Dan Knapp, K-N-A-P-P, at urbanore.org, uh, you yeah. will be able to get information and get copies of, of the founders' hearts. There are about 50 stories of people who were instrumental in the entrepreneurship and policy development of recycling. I see the same thing, exact thing is happening in compost. In fact, Brenda Platt uh, and our, my colleagues at the Institute uh, have a ongoing forum. Um, there are about 90 different company, compost companies uh, involved. Many of them are small businesses uh, that are cooperating, sharing information. Uh, some companies collect by bike, some by van. It's a wonderful aggregation of small businesses and very successful entrepreneurs. And I, again, I would encourage you to go to our page and uh, get signed up. Yeah, I mean, this podcast is uniting all those community composters. Most of us listening are found each other through the ILSR um, listserv on Google. So yeah, great. Well, then I'm sure you know that I, I believe 
Brenda and her uh, team uh, have two, uh, two, uh, uh, two conferences a year, they're virtual, and uh, many people can join to observe, or if you think interested in getting into the business to learn the techniques and get contacts by- uh, Yeah, the networking uh, events. Yeah, those are also something I would highly recommend to listeners. Um, there, there are, uh, I, I'll be happy to answer more questions. I, I'd like to make a couple of points though about um, recycle, uh, recycling and, and solid waste in general. Of course. And that yeah. is with all the environmental uh, issues we have, uh, recycling of garbage is the simplest. It's much simpler than energy, hazardous waste, nuclear waste, mainly because everything that winds up as garbage is in a human being's hands at one point before it becomes garbage. And as Mary uh, Lou Vandeventer from Irvin Orr points out, it's not garbage in you unless, uh, until it's not wasted until you decide to waste it. So if you have that piece of paper or that banana peel in your hand, you have a choice. You can throw it out and it becomes a, a waste material, costly waste material, or you could put the banana peel in a compost bucket and your piece of paper in your recycling bucket uh, and it becomes a resource and a way to reduce pollution and uh, make your city a better city, uh, a better place to live. Um, saying that it's simple uh, is, is true, but there are social and economic pressures against doing the simple thing. We've already talked about um, uh, the waste management ink people, uh, big waste that don't want you to recycle because they're making so much more money uh, at their landfills and incinerators. Um, and they have taken steps uh, to make sure that we don't recycle as much as we could. Um, the bottling industry is against bottle bills. Bottle bills are the most efficient way to get glass and metal back to industry. Uh, it's clean, uh, the markets are high for it, but Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, of course, are uh, religiously opposed to this. Now they're beginning to change because bottle bills are so popular and there may soon be a national bottle bill. And what industry is doing now is saying, okay, we'll have a bottle bill, but we control it. Maybe. And just so we're clear, the bottle bill is like a five or 10 cent deposit on returning your cans, bottles of any kind. So, Yes, if, if there's a, a nickel or a dime value on your bottle, anywhere from 70 to 90% of those cans will be returned for recycling or refilling. Um, if there's no uh, premium on it, uh, those numbers go down to the 20%, maybe 25% level. So bottle bills are, are really critical. Uh, and they also teach people a lot as, as well. All recycling teaches people about energy, environment, et cetera. Um, so um, what's happening now is that the bottlers uh, realize that bottle bills are coming. So what they're trying to do is take control of it. The key is unredeemed deposits. If I buy a bottle and I recycle it in my a street side, uh, curbside recycling program, I don't get my nickel back. So where does that nickel go? Under public bottle bills, those nickels go back to the government for reinvestment in recycling and environmental uh, upper, uh, projects. Um, if the industry owns it, that money goes back to industry. They keep that nickel. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars a year in unredeemed deposits. So that, <clears throat> Right now in Connecticut, they expanded the bottle bill a few months ago. And at the last minute, industry was there at the legislature 
uh, and before the uh, just minutes before the bill was about to be passed, they put in a proviso, an amendment saying that we control the unredeemed deposits, and the bill passed. And in New York, California, and Hawaii, we're all fighting that because it's basically uh, a takeover, uh, a hostile takeover of bottle bills. Um, there, there are other strategies too. Um, extended producer responsibility is a very important issue. I urge your listeners to go to our webpage. We have uh, many good summaries of what's going on. Um, and EPR, extended producer responsibility, is an excellent idea. The idea is that the polluter pays. In other words, if I am a bottle manufacturer selling soda um, and my bottle is out there, I am responsible for the cost of that uh, bottle being in the waste stream or litter or in the recycle stream. It all costs money. And uh, that's the polluter pays. We, we tax or surcharge those industries. And what industry is doing now in, in, in the face of this threat, they're saying extended producer responsibility is not polluter pays, it's polluter controls. Meaning they'll pay to do the recycling, but we're in charge. And literally that takes away decision-making power from local governments. Recycling is a local activity. If there were not local activism by organized citizens and small businesses, we would not have recycling in this country. And EPR under corporate control eliminates access to decision-making at the local level because the local government is no longer in charge of solid waste management. They've assigned, they've abdicated their control over recycling to the extended producer responsibility corporation. And this has happened in British Columbia uh, with disastrous results. The costs of recycling, have, British Columbia and Canada, the costs of recycling have gone up. Recycling levels have stagnated. Uh, the corporations are going after the bottle bill. They want to undermine the bottle bill because as I said before, if a Canadian in British Columbia brings their bottle back to a bottle depot, they get their nickel back. But if they bring it to a recycling center, the corporation benefit, the uh, recycling monopoly uh, benefits. So the recycling monopoly is trying to drive the bottle bill people out of business. Um, and that is what happens when you invite large corporations to take over recycling. And what EPR is now, uh, what they're attempting to do, the Fortune 500 companies, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, et cetera, they want to control the system. They're afraid that citizen activists will become uh, too radical, meaning going to the root cause of the problem and become a problem for businesses. Root cause of the problem, refillable bottle bills, not just bottle bills where you bring it back for recycling, but refillables, which are the zero waste solution and uh, the, the, the least impact on the environment and the best impact on the economy. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, mandatory composting, uh, all of these things the industry doesn't want. And now what I'd like to do is just point out what's, what cities and states are doing to attack the problem the way it should be attacked. And I'll just go through a couple of examples. California last year uh, introduced a bill, it, it will be introduced again next year, a 1% tax on all pla virgin plastic products. Texas, uh, a similar bill that, uh, that should be reintroduced this year. It's an advanced disposal fee on plastic products. You pay a little extra when you buy your product and when you bring back your plastic, you, you, get, uh, you get a rebate. 
Um, let's see, what else is going on? The Sierra Club. Uh, the Sierra Club is promoting what it calls a, uh, a producer responsibility surcharge. That is a national surcharge on all waste going to landfills and incinerators. And that, the, that money will generate hundreds of millions of dollars, actually billions of dollars. A $20 a, $20 a ton surcharge will generate $6 billion of investment in recycling, composting, and reuse. Um, and uh, the Sierra Club is suggesting that money be used for job development and small business development in recycling. And then finally, at, not finally, at the state level, uh, there are many surcharge bills being uh, introduced. Uh, uh, my, uh, the Institute is involved in Maryland in introducing a, a state surcharge. And the principle is this, it's very, very simple. If you don't like it, like plastic waste, tax it. If you like it, like composting or refillables, invest in it. And finally, if, you, if something cannot be made, uh, be made, uh, without, if something can't be made without pollution, ban it. <clears throat> or, or because it's- uh, it, Like it, what materials would that be? Uh, exactly. And for hard to recycle materials like batteries, uh, mattresses, paint, there's nothing wrong with an extended producer responsibility system because these products are very hard to add value at the local level. So let the industry take them back and deal with it properly at their own expense. But for traditional recycling, where citizens and communities and businesses can collect it, process it, make something new out of it and add jobs and value to the economy, uh, that's where we want local control. And uh, when you recycle in your city, <clears throat> you, you add value by processing it, meaning separating the metal, different types of metals, bailing them, getting them ready for industry, and then manufacturing. And the process of uh, the, 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 uh, the activity of processing and manufacturing adds jobs, uh, tax base, people pay taxes, sales tax, et cetera. And that, that is, is uh, we think, the way to handle the problem. Finally, there are new laws coming into effect, minimum content laws at the state level and federal level, if you want to sell a newspaper in California, it has to have 40% recycled material in it. Um, <clears throat> and there are other laws, uh, 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 the right, right to repair laws. There has one has been passed in New York. There are many others. This forces Apple company, uh, computer companies like Apple to make the tools for fixing your own computer, the tools and the parts available, not only to consumers who buy their products, but small businesses who provide uh, 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 fix-it services. Hmm. So the whole world is changing and what the big industry and Fortune 500 companies are trying to do is slow down the inev inevitable pathway to zero waste and decentralized recycling, which is the most efficient. And that's the battleground. Get it, solving our solid waste process is the simplest of all our environmental problems. Uh, inertia at the government level and actual attacks on sensible things from big industry and their attempt to preempt all of this local grassroots activity, um, that is the battle. It's not yeah. a technology battle, it's a battle in politics and economics. Yeah, very eye-opening, Neil, thank you. And I encourage the listeners to go on 
the ILSR website and read some of Neil's articles. Um, were there any last things you wanted to mention about yes. community composting? Uh, well, uh, I, well, as far as community composting, I really urge people to get in touch with um, <clears throat> the network that we mentioned earlier, uh, that the Institute, and of course, there's U.S. Compost Council. There are other great composting organizations at the state level and national level. But I would like uh, people <clears throat> to be aware of two things. One is the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan uh, that was produced <clears throat> by the National Recycling Coalition Zero Waste USA and the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. It's a 10-year, $16 billion plan that lays out the types of investments we need in both household recycling and commercial recycling. So go to the my webpage, ILSR.org, or the National Recycling Coalition, I believe that's NRC.org, and ZeroWasteUSA.org, uh, zero and you can get that information. <clears throat> and finally, there is a group that I'm part of called the Recycling, Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign. And it's about 150 organizations and individuals who are literally bugging uh, the elected officials in Congress, the agency of staff, the congressional staff, of course, uh, to make sure that when they build it back better and all the infrastructure money going through to recognize recycling as a major area for growth and expansion, uh, given the fact that uh, the recycling industry is already bigger than the auto industry in the United States. Uh, 60,000 companies, uh, three or four hundred billion dollars worth of sales and wages. Uh, and um, what we're doing is drawing attention to the fact that a city can get the best return on investment in its economy by focusing on waste, reducing waste and increasing recovery, processing and manufacturing from very valuable discarded materials. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. Uh, thank you. Well, we appreciate you too, because we know you're out there. And uh, I, I certainly appreciate uh, being on the air with you. Yeah, thanks again, Neil. Take care. All right, have a great uh, New Year's. You too, bye-bye. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's 5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling.